Welcome to Branch Pod, where we believe that growing a relationship with Jesus Christ is about your everyday, not just your Sunday. I'm your host, Christina Bontrager, and for the next 13 weeks, we'll be diving deeper into our Sunday series through the Book of Esther, through a variety of interviews, reflections, spiritual practices, and stories to help us bring the book to life outside of Sunday mornings. This week, our Branch Kids Director, Laura Kester, sat down with special guest, Meredith Miller, to talk about how we engage in the story of Esther with children. Well, hello, Branch family. Thank you so much for joining us. I am Laura. I am the director for Branch Kids, the children's ministry at our wonderful church. And I am joined today by a wonderful friend. Her name is Meredith. I had the privilege of working with her, writing curriculum, teaching kids at church for many years. And unfortunately, she and her husband and kids have moved across the country to the glorious land of California. But through the magic of technology, she's joining us this morning. Say hi, Meredith. Hey, it's so good to see you and thank you to Branch Families for being here with me. Oh man, we are super excited for this content. Um, Now, what a lot of our Branch Family may be unaware of is we are going to start teaching the story of Esther in the elementary class starting the beginning of March. Um, And who knows, maybe this podcast is coming out now at the beginning of March. So our hope is with um, our discussion between myself and Meredith, we can give you parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, babysitters, handles on how to discuss this very difficult story with kids. Obviously, there are a lot of things that are not kid appropriate, not age appropriate. um, And we want to kind of pick and choose what details we go into with our kids. But the overall theme of God is at work, even when we can't see him, is so clear in the story of Esther, that is what we truly want to kind of focus on. Um, So to begin, we thought that it would be interesting if we could maybe define some concepts and some vocabulary if you're talking about the story of Esther with your kids in a kid-friendly way, so that it can be clear for our young um, Bible scholars how to understand the different viewpoints of this story. So here's a vocabulary word from this story, harem. (laughs) And it's like, it's the part of the story that almost everybody knows, right? Um, Not that I've seen a lot of kids' Bibles saying it, but again, if if parents are reading along with their kids in an adult Bible, it's going to come up. So what's a kid-friendly explanation of what a harem is? Yeah. This is one where you are definitely giving kids something of a euphemism, and I think that's completely appropriate. And so perhaps you would say the king had the power to have whoever he wanted around him. He could have anybody he wanted to give him advice. He could have anybody he wanted to make his food. He could also have anybody he wanted to keep him company, and nobody was allowed to say no. And so if the king wanted to have lots of women around like wives or girlfriends, he was allowed to do that. And the women were never allowed to say no. And then when it wasn't really their turn to be with the king, they would be together in a place where they would all live as a group. And so probably Esther spent a lot of time with other women who are all now living in the king's palace because they don't have the chance to say no. And they just have to kind of do their life there now because the king said so. And I think it can be helpful to frame the harem in terms of the king having power in maybe a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, 
just because that again is a concept kids have seen through fairy tale type stories, the idea of a king being able to have what they want. Um, and ultimately in the role of a harem from an adult end, that is what's happening. It's the power to be like, I want this woman and mm-hmm. I can have her. Mm-hmm. And so you could use other kinds of examples that don't show up in Esther. No one's talking about who cooked the king's food in Xerxes palace, but it would inevitably be true. Mm-hmm. And kids could then, I think, draw good parallels to this idea of um, being able to have what they want. Absolutely. How about an edict? It's a little simpler to explain. Yeah, I think just being able to say they could make a law or give a command mm-hmm. and everybody had to do what they were told. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing with the Persian law being you can't repeal it. So it always stands no matter what it's been. But like we see that in the story of Daniel too. Yeah. Yep. There it is. And so I think even that of saying you can't take it back. That's the phrase that kids often know. Um, and we would think, why can't you? But that's just how it worked at that point. If the king gave a command like this, there was no way to take it back. And so now they have to figure out what to do when the king has said this terrible thing will happen and it can't be changed. And they're probably feeling really stuck and really confused and wondering what what they should do. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, one concept too, and this will be for our older elementary, you know, middle school learners, but is the concept of living in exile. The fact that some of God's people had been taken to Persia as slaves and then were just continuing to live there. Um, do you maybe have a, a couple of, um, phrases or explanations for maybe how to explain all of that? (laughs) The exile, the kids. Yeah. Um, the thing about the exile is it helps if we can maybe at other times connect kids to sort of the broader story arc of scripture. So if God is inviting Abraham and Sarah to become a big family who eventually are the people of Israel who were enslaved in Egypt, freed and wandered the wilderness, brought to a land of their own. And from that land, they were meant to live in a way that matches who God is. That's often the phrase that I think kids can understand. The way they live together should match who God is. But when the leaders ignored that and wanted to have power and wanted to put their trust in other things instead of in God, then all the people started walking a different way and they were living in a way that did not match who God is. And so God sent person after person to give warnings to those leaders to say, hey, you're heading away from God and Yet, a lot of times when people decide they really love power, they don't want to give power up. And that was true of Israel's leaders too, even though they knew God, and even though they were part of God's people, the leaders who loved power didn't want to give that up. And so after God tried for so long, there was a consequence of the people not being able to stay in that land anymore because they couldn't just keep living in a way that didn't match who God is because people were getting hurt because of that. And God cares when people keep suffering and God cares when people get hurt. And so it had to stop, which meant some of those leaders were taken into exile. And this was really hard for God's people. They didn't know what to do and they weren't sure how to make meaning of it. Was God done with them? Was God still with them? How do they find their way back? How do they return to living in a way that does match who God is after all? And all of those great questions are the things that they were figuring out together during the time of exile. And a lot of the stories from scripture are them looking at the story of God always at work with them Mm -hmm. and realizing who they were most meant to be. Mm -hmm. And so that, that I just said, that's not 
all right as you're also talking about Esther because your poor kid will go cross-eyed and be totally overwhelmed. (laughs) But that idea of that story, that bigger narrative that goes through the Old Testament, if there are chances to help older learners understand that plot, then an individual story like Esther or Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego Give, it gives it some context. What's mm-hmm. happening in exile? How are the people feeling in exile? What are they wondering about in exile? And then here's this instance. Mm-hmm. So kind of part A about exile is less of the definition and more of the story. Like, why are they there? And then part B of defining it, I think could simply be God's people were not living in their own home and their own land. They had actually been taken away as a consequence of not trusting God. And then in this new place, they were having to figure out how to trust God again when God had always been trustworthy. Mm-hmm. And Esther and Mordecai and the people have this opportunity to grow back into trusting the God who's going to save them because God's always at work, not just in their home, but in all these other lands too. Mm-hmm. And the fact that even far away from the place that God had promised his people to show the rest of the world who God is, they have an even better opportunity to really zero in on who God's already revealed himself to be to the people of God and therefore those around them too. Absolutely. And a huge piece of exile, just as um, the adult who's helping a kid out in the ancient Near East, a God is only seen to have power in their own territory. The gods of Egypt are only powerful in Egypt, right? And the gods of Babylon are only powerful in Babylon. So it would stand to reason that for Israel, this idea that their God is actually powerful in all places is new. It's something they're learning how that works. The idea that God would be powerful in Babylon was not automatically obvious to them because everybody expected their God to have boundaries where their power ceased and the powers of the gods of the next territory became greater. Hmm. Beyond that, if you are conquered, the assumption was that that meant the gods of the conquering nation were more powerful than your God. So to be in exile would raise questions of whether the gods of Persia are actually stronger than Yahweh God of Israel. And to see God come through and be at work in this other location, in this other setting, is not just about God being all that God is for them. It's about demonstrating that God can do that in some other gods, so to speak, place. And that would have all been really new for Israel. They would have been growing into that being the truth. Hmm. And experiences like this were really important for helping them see God as the God over everywhere and the God over all all situations. Um, There's a chance that it's not just that God is powerful. It's God's more powerful than we ever even realized. And exile is an important backdrop to understanding that piece. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It actually even gives greater understanding and weight to the fact that Purim is such a celebrated holiday for the Jewish people too, because not only is it the deliverance of um, of God through Esther, but also this example that Yahweh is the God of everywhere, not just. Mm-hmm. That's yep. really cool. Um, so final concept, and it's something that um, I've been following you a lot, and it's one that we've been making a shift in our children's ministry for, is this concept of God-centered storytelling. 
the story of Esther so often has been kind of a standalone. Let's look at Esther. Let's be like Esther. Let's be courageous. Let's be brave. Let's, you know, listen and obey our elders since she listened to Mordecai or whatever. We see her behavior and we try to um, extract some uh, moral compass for our kids to emulate. And yet the Bible isn't a how-to book of being a good kid. The Bible is a revelation of God to us. And so switching the lens, switching the focus from, look how Mordecai acted. Look how Haman acted. Don't be like him. Be like him. But be focused on that concept in big church, we keep saying God's absence points to his providence. In BK, we're going to be saying God is always working even when we can't see him because that truth is throughout Esther and that truth is throughout our lives too. We can't see God. We can't necessarily hear an audible voice. And yet the sunrise is amazing. The way a baby grows is amazing. The way the seasons change always show his power, his care, his love. So I don't know if there's anything you'd like to add to this idea of God-centered storytelling when we hear Esther to not automatically jump to be courageous like Esther, but more take a step back and see how was God working in Esther's life and how did Esther respond to him? Absolutely. And I think that this is such an interesting book for the God-centered storytelling idea because God does not show up as an active character that we can look at what God said, like God spoke to Moses or such those. And that is so relevant to how a kid is trying to figure out like who God is. Um, and so I think that part of what God centered storytelling offers us is a chance to realize that what is really relevant to a kid are the same kinds of questions that people might've been carrying. It, what is Esther wondering before she's ever courageous? What do you think she is unsure about? What do you think she's afraid of when she is not entirely sure the best course of action to take when she goes to seek the wisdom of Mordecai as advice? What kinds of questions does she have? And as we explore how she must have felt because she's a real person, those are going to be the same kinds of questions and emotions we all feel, including kids. And so there's a tremendous relevance to be found in letting the humans be human because the things that the humans in scripture aren't sure about or are trying to figure out or the ways they're practicing trusting this God. It's not all in the negative of their doubts and their fears. It's just, I'm practicing trusting that if I show up in this King's court, the God that I serve will keep me from being murdered. Like that's true. <laughs> There's something then about like, what do you think Esther knows about who God is that helps her go into the king's court even so? What kinds of attributes of God might, might she be thinking of when she's about to take that courageous step? It's not that she's so wonderfully courageous. The courage comes from something that she knows about God. And so I think the thing about God-centered storytelling is that the people's actions still matter, but they actually become more relevant because they are more accessible to how we all try to walk through practicing trusting God and getting to know God. When we make the human the center of the story, be like Esther, be like Mordecai, don't be like Haman. I actually think for kids that often makes it harder because now these people become characters and even sometimes caricatures of attributes. 
And a kid will feel like they are inadequate, that they can't ever be that. You say, go be courageous. And they just know on Monday at school, they can't pull it off. And now they feel stuck and sort of ashamed or sad. They are unlikely to actually tell you as their trusted grown-up that that's how they feel because they want you to approve of them and say that they've done a good job. And so they will keep all that inside. Um, and that will get in the way of them practicing living out their own steps of trust and expressing those steps of trust because they'll be mindful that they just can't. Um, and so it's, it's kind of counterintuitive. We think that when we give them the next right step, then we've helped make it easy to take the next right step. But often by telling them exactly what it should be, there's less space for them to figure it out with you and with God. And then it turns God into a giant list keeper, right? And then it turns God into somebody that they don't want to follow or spend time with or listen to. Because if they're always going to feel defeated right out the gate, then what's what's the purpose? What's the reward? Whereas you turn it into, okay, I can look at Esther and she struggled with some things. I struggle every Monday morning when I have to get on that bus. But Esther knew God was with her. I'm going to do my best to remember God is with me or whatever the case may be. Yep. Yep. And you can say, do you think it was easier or hard for Esther to believe that? Mm -hmm. And there's no right or wrong answer to that. That's not in the story, the degree of difficulty she experienced in coming to the conclusions. And so there's nothing wrong with a kid sort of taking a guess at whether they thought it was hard or easy and why. And then to turn to their life and say, is it hard or easy for you to believe God's with you when you get on the bus? And why? And all of us, sometimes the answer is hard and sometimes the answer is easy. And so every um, day, exactly. <laughs> and being able to stop and say, why? And just to not be worried that the reality that it's hard and that the reason is I'm just not sure when I can't see God, that that is all okay. And that being honest about that and creating safety in our faith conversations about that, um, that God is not now like, checking the list to be like, oh, oh, you're not wanting to be courageous. Okay. That's like minus five points. Um, but the idea that God would be compassionate and empathetic, mm-hmm. I think God understands how hard it is to trust a God you cannot see or hear. I mean, Jesus speaks to this. Jesus prays for those of us who will not be able to see, hear, touch because it's hard. And so giving kids the chance to um, wonder about those kinds of things and turn towards the experience of God with them, there's just so much more there than if you just tell them, go be courageous like Esther, or yes, or listen to your grownups like she did, or whatever other kinds of immediately actionable items. Um, You miss other things. Mm -hmm. One other thing that always pops up with some of these like big sweeping epic stories where the bad seems so bad, like even, even with Adam and Eve, right? kids and adults, adults think it, but kids can verbalize it. But why didn't God just, why didn't God just get rid of Haman? Why didn't God just make Esther queen right away instead of this really long, ridiculous beauty pageant? You know, what, how, how can us as parents address kind of those doubts that we even, you know, think ourselves, why didn't he? Like, why did it have to get so bad or why did it have to get so far from who we know God to be, who he reveals himself to be? Yeah. I think that ultimately 
reminding kids that God does this thing that we might think God should not have done, which is share an inordinate amount of power with humanity. And so God's whole dream is not just for the world to work in a way that matches who God is, but for all of us to be part of making that dream come true. God's dream includes the idea that we would be on a team together, making the world beautiful and lovely and being creative in how we each did that in a way that matches who God is. And because that's the dream, when people choose to do that some other way, when they choose themselves and power and whatever other kinds of things people might turn to instead, God doesn't take it back. And we might wish God would just take it all back and use all of God's power to fix it. But God always chose to share power, even when things go wrong. And so that can be hard. And I think with kids to just say, we can feel however we feel about that, (laughs) Um, that it's okay to say, hey, God, I don't feel like that was a very good idea (laughs) to, to keep sharing power with us. Um, but this idea of God sharing power with people, it's part of what it means to be made in God's image, to be given actual authority in sharing our care for creation and in exercising dominion. Um, that it's not just that God loves humanity. It's that God has shared authority and power and the ability to make real choices with humanity, that that's all part of the design. And so, um, that truth in Genesis one informs a lot of the whole rest of the story that, you know, all of Israel is this idea of God coming back to say, I'm giving you power to be the people who would show what I'm like to the nations and people will or won't know who I am because of how you represent me or not. And so that is, I think, uncomfortable for us at times that God has chosen to do it that way. And there is a dynamic tension between a God who is as great and powerful as God is and a God who shares that much with people, mm-hmm. even at the expense of the outcomes or a, in a severe delay of the outcomes. Mm-hmm. One of the things that Esther reminds us of that's true with our kids with lots of stories is um, we worry that with complicated stories, that means we have to have answers ready for them. But I think that the hope with kids is that we show that these stories can be explored and that we're looking for who God is and what is God like and all these other pieces that are confusing and hard to understand and and messy. We can name those as such and that's okay. We don't need to give our kids like a tidy bow or a perfect answer or an it's all okay because um, it's okay to let our kids live in these same tensions. I think we worry that we're hurting their faith, but really space to ask questions is a faith building reality. It's sort of counterintuitive, but there's like kind of a whole bunch of research. Kids with that are given lots of space to safely explore questions and even doubts, they fare better over the long haul because in our real life, our faith includes deep trust and big questions. And so when kids get that chance early on, that's actually setting them up for long-term health. And so as a parent, when you find yourself being like, I just don't actually have the answers. That's all, but that's like not the thing you actually need. Mm-hmm. Um, and Esther's a great space to practice being okay with lots of things that don't end up really tidy. 
And um, I think the thing that you were also intimating in all that explanation, Meredith, is the fact that you can explore the messiness together. You are learning with your kid. You don't have all the answers for your kid. And so you are encouraging your kid to ask them with you. It not only builds trust between the two of you, but it also models to your kid how to have healthy doubts and how to, oh, I don't know that there's an unhealthy doubt, how to have healthy faith growth, right? And doing it together can just solidify your bond. So that's really cool. Yep. Really, yeah, really cool. Absolutely. Well, um, thank you so much for joining us today, Meredith. Uh, Branch family, I have a couple of great resources for you. My friend Meredith has a website to, to check out, which is meredithannmiller.com. And then uh, the last thing, and this is actually really awesome to do with your kids if you think you could get them into a podcast. She has an Ask Away podcast where she and kids explore Bible stories and they talk about some of these big picture questions. And there is space and there is room for a lot of that um, questioning and faith building to happen. She even takes questions from your own kids about the stories. So I really encourage you. It is right. Um, Great. So kid listeners can record questions and they send them in and we talk about a couple each time. And so that part is super fun. mm -hmm. So, um, any, anything else? What did I miss Meredith? I do also every six weeks or so send out a little newsletter where I try to respond to a question I've gotten from a parent, a question I hear a kid ask and break down one Bible story as far as ways you can explore it, truths about God you might highlight, a little bit of background that might be helpful to you, like that exile kind of thing. And so um, there's a sign up either at the Instagram or on the website if that's the kind of thing you'd enjoy having come to your inbox that just is a chance to kind of explore this same kind of thing. How do we talk with our kids about these great faith questions and Bible stories? Fantastic. Well, thank you, Branch family. Thank you for your time. And we look forward to exploring Esther together. To learn more about the Branch and how to get connected, head to brch.org for upcoming events and to listen to past messages. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Branch Pod, and we'll see you next week.